Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring alien contacts and abductions. My guest is Ralph Blumenthal, a longtime reporter for the New York Times. He is also author of The Believer, Alien Abductions, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack. Ralph is based in the New York area, and now I'll switch over to the internet interview. Welcome, Ralph. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Thank you, Jeff. A pleasure to be with you. We're going to be focusing today on alien abductions and contacts, the very thing that captivated the interest of John Mack, who you wrote about in your book, The Believer. I think a good place to start would be with the famous Betty and Barney Hill case. Sure. Uh, this was the uh, mother load of uh, abductions, uh, although interestingly enough, it happened in 1961, but it didn't come out until about five years later um, because Betty and Barney Hill kept it secret. And for those very few of your uh, watchers and listeners who, who don't know, perhaps we should briefly um, just recap the story. Uh, Betty and Barney Hill were a, a New Hampshire couple. Uh, interesting for that time in the uh, 60s, it was, they were an interracial couple. Uh, Betty was white, Barney was black. Uh, he was a postal worker who had been a World War II combat uh, soldier. And uh, Betty was a social worker. They were a very good couple, very close, and they had actually worked and done civil rights work in New Hampshire, which made them nervous about telling their story when it finally uh, came up. Um, so in 1961, they took off on a belated honeymoon to Canada, Niagara Falls, and uh, the storm came in, and so they cut short the honeymoon, and on the way back, they noticed this um, craft or something that looked like a plane at first following them. It was late at night, it was deserted on the roads, and they got increasingly nervous. Um, as they got a good glimpse of it, it looked like a huge craft with windows, um, uh, the, um, they stopped their car in the middle of the road, um, uh, and then uh, a lot of the story blacked out. I mean, they only recovered it later. They remembered some parts consciously, which is typical uh, for these abduction scenarios, uh, but other um, details only came out in uh, hypnotic regressions later, and they had a very good um, hypnotist or, social, or a psychiatrist, um, uh, Benjamin Simon, who had done remarkable work in World War II with uh, traumatized veterans. So he knew what he was doing when he came across a traumatized person, or a couple in this case. Um, and the story that came out, and it, I mean, it's a very long story. I'm not going to you know, go over it all in detail, but a book was written about it um, called uh, Interrupted Journey. There was a movie um, and um, uh, what they recaptured later in these hypnotic regressions were that they were taken by alien beings uh, for experiments aboard a ship. Um, uh, Betty had her dress torn as they tried to get the dress off. The dress was later found torn. Uh, Barney's shoes were scraped as he remembered being pulled across the, the ground um, into the ship. Um, and um, 
And that was basically it. The story came out only later uh, when they started talking about it to what they thought was a, a, a church audience, a very limited group. And there was a reporter. There's always a reporter in the room, which is a good lesson. Uh, and he tried to get them to cooperate with telling their story. They declined and he wrote the story anyway in the Boston Herald Traveler. And it was a sensation. Uh, it was. It really is the first uh, big abduction case. There were er earlier cases, which we can discuss, um, one in Brazil and, you know, a lot of strange stories over the years. But this was the first one that came up in the mass media era. And, uh, and it was huge. And John Mack became aware of it uh, much later after it happened, because it happened, as I said, in 61. It became public around 65. And John Mack didn't get into the whole subject till about 1990. I actually met Betty Hill. Oh, Wow. It was very interesting. I don't think I've shared this with you before, Ralph, but while I was a graduate student at Berkeley, one of my professors uh, in my interdisciplinary yeah, PhD program in parapsychology was James Harder, who was the research director for the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization. And he was right on many of these early abduction cases, uh, hypnotizing the uh, victims, as it were. Uh, victims is a good word because many of them did feel deeply traumatized. Although, as you know, John Mack found a a positive element to these experiences in that the abductees or the experiencers, as he preferred to call them, uh, emerged with a greater appreciation for the fate of the earth, uh, you know, uh, working against pollution and, and, and the love that they felt permeates the universe. So they felt really attracted to these beings um, and to, uh, you know, a sort of a God, God figure. But that's interesting. You know, Betty, at the end of her life, um, Barney died um, some years after the experiences, um, but she went on to live quite a few years without him. And she claimed that she was able to call in these uh, UFOs later and had contact. Uh, she could initiate contact, which is quite um, controversial to say the least and interesting. And um, it was viewed as kind of fringy, actually. Um, but um, the whole story is crazy to begin with. So who can say, you know, what part is crazier than another part? Uh, the important thing is that John Mack realized is that these stories held up under, um, you know, repeated interviews. There was no physical proof. Proof was always lacking. But the, um, the mindset, the affect of the people telling the stories and then sometimes the witness statements corroborating uh, the accounts um, – were very convincing to him. So, you know, who's to say? But Betty was a, quite a personality in her own right for many years uh, after uh, the event. Uh, yeah, I met her at uh, James Harder's home one, one day back when I was a graduate student. He invited me over and there she was. Did you talk, did she talk about the experience? Well, it was really a brief encounter, but yes. Uh-huh. Wow. And as you know, she donated, or actually, uh, yeah, I believe she herself donated um, uh, all the artifacts of that day to the University of New Hampshire at Durham. And there they remain for study by skeptics, uh, researchers, anybody. Her torn dress, Barney's shoes, uh, all the videotapes and audio tapes of their hypnotic regressions. 
So, um, you know, as I've said before, the so-called skeptics, before they, you know, uh, sort of um, uh, debunk out of reflex these stories and say, well, it's impossible. Of course it's impossible. <laughs> no one doubts that it's impossible, yet these people say it happened and, and there's some credibility attached to these stories. Anyway, um, let the skeptics go through the archive. Um, listen to the tapes. I've listened to a lot of the tapes myself, not, not from that case particularly, but experience or tapes. Um, I reviewed their accounts. And like John Mack, uh, I have to conclude that there is no better explanation than what the people themselves say happened, which may not be very good, but it's, it's the only thing there is. Betty and Barney Hill seem to be the first milestone, as it were, of what became, I think, a, a social movement that by the time John Mack got involved, there were already organizations uh, for the abductees. Right. They had uh, come together now, as I you know, say in the book, Bud Hopkins had started researching this um, some years before John Mack ever got into it. And he was really the first a uh, big researcher, and, and closely uh, after him or with him, uh, David Jacobs joined the, the research, uh, you know, the quest. Uh, he was a professor, well, Bud Hopkins first, he was an artist on Cape Cod who had uh, witnessed a UFO on a way to a party and got interested in the subject and then uh, researched it and found that not only were the UFOs interesting, but the people who said they were taken by beings from the UFOs. So Bud Hopkins went into all this, and as he said, it, it, people don't care what an artist thinks. He didn't have a, a career to to risk. Uh, but um, And then he got David Jacobs involved, who did have more of a career to risk. He was a professor at Temple University, who had written a groundbreaking book on the history of UFOs. And um, together they did a lot of uh, hypnosis and then they interviewed their own uh, experiences. And then John Mack got into it. So, um, uh, so by the time John Mack got into it, as you said, the phenomenon was pretty much well underway. Well, there's also James Harder. He didn't write any books, so he, he didn't achieve that kind of a profile. He worked rather quietly, but he was a professor at Berkeley in uh, hydraulic engineering and uh, a practicing hypnotist, and, and he was usually on uh, the scene right away. He hypnotized, if I recall correctly, Travis Walton. He hypnotized the uh, victims of the Pascagoula case, uh, and he was very quietly establishing uh, for himself and for the organization that he was part of called the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, uh, an understanding of what was going on. I think he wanted to avoid publicity in order not to sort of taint the potential field of future abductees. Right. Unlike John Mack, who, who welcomed, relished the publicity, he was a very charismatic guy who, uh, you know, was, you know, I, I, I was going to say spoiling for a fight, but that's not fair. But he was ready for the fight when it came uh, from Harvard and from, from others. Um, and he was not intimidated. Uh, on the contrary, he was energized. But as you say, there were a lot of other researchers who have not gotten the same am amount of publicity, perhaps uh, obviously because they weren't psychiatrists at Harvard. Um, you know, that was a big factor 
in his uh, fame or, or infamy that he had these credentials. He wasn't just a researcher, but he was a, a an eminent um, you know leader in the field of, of mental health. Um, so, but th- there were many others doing the research. You're absolutely right, and interesting. They were coming up with somewhat different things. I talk about a. Um, uh, a big conference at MIT that John Mack went to in 1992 where people from different disciplines compared notes. There were psychiatrists like him, there were atomic physicists, there were theologians, uh, religious scholars, um, and uh, all of them were coming up with something slightly different. Uh, you know, like the proverbial, you know, blind man and the elephant. Um, you know, it's a very strange phenomenon. I don't have to tell you that. And, um, uh, you know, it, and it, there was a basic symmetry to it, which attracted John Mack. He saw all the stories basically, uh, were, were consistent or they were, you know, they, they, were, they, they rhymed, you know, maybe, but the details were wildly different in many cases. Um, so, um, uh, so p- different, you know, researchers were getting different thing and the, you know, the researcher you mentioned, uh, possibly got, had a different take than, than John Mack. Well, uh, as I recall from, uh, the work I did with Harder, he felt that he had a, a real understanding of the alien population. He explained to me, for example, that they had, uh, 20,000 members in their uh, species and that they had uh, uh, lifespans of roughly 20,000 years. Uh, So uh, he seemed to feel that uh, uh, by quietly interviewing people, he was learning a a good deal about who these visitors were. Well, that that is a really interesting point. You know, I don't really get into that in my book because it was hard enough focusing on John Mack and, and the stories he was getting. But And since then, I might say, uh, more information has come out. Different experiencers have been emboldened, possibly, or probably, through John Mack's um, you know, notoriety and courage to come forward. Um, different experiences have come forward. I just got you know an email from someone today telling me a long story of what happened to her, and she wrote a book, like other people. So uh, the stuff that's coming out now... It talks about the different races and people are making contact with uh, not only, you know, the um, so-called grays, the, the short little figures with the, you know, mushroom colored skin, big eyes, uh, rubbery kind of um, physique. Um, those are the common uh, alien types that you see depicted in, you know, movies and books and illustrations. But there are many other types of doctor types and tall, you know, more humanoid figures. And as you say, now there's uh, descriptions of different races and that, you know, the aliens are not just one one thing. They, they, you know, they're... uh, come maybe from different corners of the cosmos and the different stages of development. I mean, the whole thing is so crazy, even to talk about it um, is mind-boggling. But uh, you have to have a certain amount of courage, I guess, just to wade into this field and say, well, let's listen to what these people are saying. Of course it's crazy. But, um, you know, physics is crazy. 
Well, one of the uh, points that you made is that Betty Hill claimed after her abduction, she was able to uh, invoke somehow the presence of, of UFOs. And uh, there's there's been, I have to call it a, a, a group of people or a cult of people who, who also believe they can invoke these phenomena. Yeah, well, when you think of it that, I mean, one of the major mysteries in the whole field is why some people are taken and other people are not. Now, John Mack looked at the population of people who, who, who came forward to him or who he was able to uh, influence to come forward because some of them were very reluctant. And he found there was absolutely nothing to distinguish them. They were not mentally ill, first of all. Um, they were not delusionary. They were, they were ordinary people from all different walks of life. So nothing distinguished them uh, on the surface. Uh, they were, you know, they, they were not rape victims looking to transfer their rape experience to aliens. I mean, nothing like that. If they were all, um, basically, quote, normal people from different walks of life, what dis what distinguished them? Why were they picked and other people were not picked? So um, that's something I focus on in my book. And the answer, which I don't have, um, but may have to do with some um, structure in, in, in the brain or some physical uh, abnormality that has yet to be detected that enables some people to connect with this other dimension. That's the only way I can describe it. Um, there is some, there may be some ability they have, a psychic ability or some uh, chemical interaction in their, in their physique that enables them to connect and others not to. And that, and then it would follow that some could, could bring on these, these contacts. Um, as, as many of them say they're able to do. I spoke to an experiencer just today who said uh, he feels um, some ability to connect, or at least he knew when they, when they were coming. He felt a certain energy in the room and a hum and, you know, all these uh, signals. So anyway, um, um, so that may, so Betty may have been onto something that, you know, she was widely ridiculed for saying she could call in UFOs, but, uh, everything else she said was, was wild too. You know, back in 1976, I did a study with a UFO uh, contactee who claimed he had been abducted, claimed that aliens had operated on his brain, giving him strange powers. And uh, he actually said he could produce UFOs on demand, and, and he did. He predicted for me there would be a UFO, it would be seen by hundreds of people, photographed, and that the photograph would be published in the front page of one of the local newspapers in the San Francisco Bay Area, and that actually happened within days. You know, that's another example of the information, supposedly, that these entities are able to convey. So you say, you know, um, uh, they t t tell you when the UFOs are coming in and to look for them, and sure enough, they'll be there. Uh, this ability to know the future uh, is one of the, the hallmarks of, of these experiences. Um, and again, it's, it's crazy, but it's no crazier than anything else. 
Now, one of the individuals who, who has been prominent in the UFO scene is Dr. Stephen Greer, who has actually launched a, a movement of sorts for people to invoke lights in the sky or, or, or UFOs, as, as did Ted Owens, the man I studied for so many years. Uh, I wonder, did Dr. Mack have any interactions with Greer? Do you know about that? I don't believe so. Um, I think Greer came along later. Um, and um, I'm trying to think back whether Mac talked about people who had the ability to, to call them in. I don't think so. Although that came up, that came up, I believe, in some of the stories. Um, but um, I know that Stephen Greer has organized these expeditions where he takes people out. At night, and they, you know, they camp out, and then they look, and and sure enough, these uh, uh, lights materialize. Um, so that that is an interesting aspect of things, and uh, it does seem to happen to people who are open to it more than than other people for some reason. Um, so, and it also, I should say, it, it seems to run in families. Um, <clears throat> John Mack found that. Um, uh, if you've been, if you've had an abduction experience, it's likely that your mother or your parents have had it, and your grandparents, and likely your children will. And this was a, a point of terror to some people, knowing that the um, encounters they had would be inflicted on their children as well. They were powerless to protect their children. Now, why? <clears throat> Why the aliens would focus on families is a matter of studying, you know, a family line. Uh, it also seemed, the phenomenon seemed to focus on um, people in their reproductive years, which is interesting. Uh, if you haven't been abducted by, by menopause, uh, chances are you won't be for some reason. Um, so it does seem to be somehow related to, to the reproductive years, although children as young as two um, told of some of these experiences flying up in the sky and they were too young to, you know, to read books about it or to see movies. So where these stories came from is anybody's guess. And, and Mac concluded that something like that must have happened because there was no other way for these kids to, to know about it. They weren't making it up um, because the stories were so consistent. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so... Um, I, I'm not surprised to hear that, you know, Stephen Greer and others ha have, have been uh, interested in this aspect of the ability to, to make contact at will. Another aspect of the whole uh, scene around UFOs is the uh, cattle mutilations. Uh, it's been researched extensively by Linda Moulton Howe, and uh, I wonder if Dr. Mack looked into that at all. You know what? It's interesting. Somebody asked him that at a uh, at a conference, and he said he had his hands full with the abductions. <laughs> um, and he, at that point, he was not about to go into these other uh, anomalous events, uh, of which there were many. Later on in his career, he did, in fact, uh, explore many other examples of anomalous um, events, including um, crop circles and and life after death, survival of consciousness, if you want to call it, call it that. Um, so, um, but at the time, uh, he he stayed away from cattle mutilations because he had his hands full, as it were. He had enough trouble uh, with Harvard over uh, you know uh, alien contacts. But, um, you know, the, the, there's the whole um, story about Skinwalker Ranch, 
which uh, Robert Bigelow, the billionaire Las Vegas uh, space entrepreneur and hotel mogul, uh, bought. This was a ranch in Utah that had actually scared almost to death the owners, um, a very well-grounded couple who had bought the ranch and then found all these strange things happening and fled finally. And Bigelow bought it and conducted a bunch of experiments there, uh, set up all kinds of cameras. There's been a movie about it. There's a book about it. Uh, very interesting story. And um, um, and, and among the uh, events, the many unexplained events to take place at this ranch, spooky, really spooky events, were these cattle mutilations where uh, uh, calves and cows uh, would be found in the morning uh, cut as if with a knife. Um, actually, their insides neatly removed. Um, and uh, it's been studied. Uh, there have been pictures taken. Uh, there were theories that there were vampire um, bats or, you know, vampire animals, uh, coyotes, but none of that seemed satisfactory in terms of explanation to explain the really the precision of these cuts. Um, and it's, it's completely eerie. Um, so that is one aspect. And you're absolutely right that Linda Moulton Howe and others have um, really made a specialty of investigating these things, and uh, and sheriff's offices have been called in. There's been a lot of um, law enforcement has been notified because it's a livelihood for people, their cattle, and to find their cattle in the morning uh, murdered, basically, um, and not only killed, I mean, they would understand if they were killed by bears or wolves, but killed in this completely bizarre way. Um, is another aspect of the this, this all-enfolding mystery. As I recall, in some instances, the cattle uh, were killed in the winter when there was snow on the ground, and uh, there were no tracks to be found uh, leading up to the cattle that uh, an animal or a human would have necessarily had to have made in the snow. Among the stories that, that came up with Skinwalker Ranch, Skinwalker, by the way, being a Navajo term for these shape-shifting entities uh, that the Navajo believed um, were, uh, you know, part of this spiritual dimension uh, um, that we don't see, but that intrude on, on our reality. Um, <clears throat> but there were stories of... Um, uh, this family who had bought the ranch originally encountered large wolves, really the triple life size, gigantic. And when they shot them, the wolves uh, wouldn't die. Uh, they would walk away. And uh, the the uh, farmer who, who owned the ranch originally uh, talked about this. He actually sent his son back to get a more powerful rifle and shot the wolf again and again and walked away. And the... Um, <clears throat> One theory was that the wolf was already dead, <laughs> uh, that it was this was some kind of a spiritual being that couldn't be killed because it wasn't alive. Um, and that's only one, one of the <laughs> extremely uh, spooky things that happened at, at uh, Skinwalker Ranch. But um, cattle mutilation was definitely part of it. So the implication, both with the UFO abductions and with the cattle mutilation, seems to be that there are entities, beings, uh, who live in another dimension of space, and they're able to enter into our dimension and then leave without going through the normal procedures that any three-dimensional creature would have to go through. 
Yeah, and this is what Mac had to contend with, these stories. You know, where did these things come from? They materialize in the room, as, uh, often at night, but not always, sometimes in broad daylight, um, when, when people are driving cars, in one case a woman on her snowmobile, uh, uh, sort of blacked out, and, and later her clothes were found neatly folded next to her. She then, uh, upon, you know, a regression later, recalled an abduction experience. Um, so uh, John Mack said very often that these, this phenomenon has a way of penetrating our reality, is how he put it. Uh, it is not our everyday reality. Now, uh, Hopkins and Jacobs uh, took a somewhat different view, saying it was happening in our reality, and these were real experiences, as real as anything else people encounter, and they were for purposes of reproduction to produce a hybrid race. Um, but And John Mack uh, sort of drifted away from that later and said, well, it's not that clear. It's it's not happening in everyday reality because if it was, we'd see it. Um, so it's got to be happening in some other uh, dimension or reality, which we don't understand. But uh, that doesn't mean it's not happening and, and it's not real to these people because um, every other explanation, and you know, every time Mac turned up at a conference uh, or later at Harvard when he was under investigation, uh, there were people who said, oh, I can explain this. This is, you know, sleep paralysis. This is, uh, you know, mental illness. This is this. This is that. Um, but John Mack, uh, I think, effectively demolished, um, uh, you know, that kind of debunking by people who didn't really know what they were talking about because they hadn't studied the material as he had. So he kept saying, if someone has a good explanation, I'd like to hear it. Uh, I'm not wedded to, to my explanation, uh, you know, um, flawed as it is, um, but I haven't heard anything, you know, better. And, um, and that's what we're left with, even after all these years. As I recall, early on in the uh, abduction scene, there were women in particular who felt that they had been impregnated and that they had lost the uh, child or the child had been removed from them. It was being raised by alien entities in another location or another dimension. They would be brought to visit the child from time to time. And I'm under the impression that at least initially, Mac was willing to accept these stories at face value. He was very t taken with these stories. The, the women told these stories, one of which uh, he, he played a tape of at, at Harvard, uh, an audio tape of a woman recalling during a hypnosis session um, the taking of her, of her pregnancy and, um, and weeping and cursing and uh, shaking with fright as she recalled this years, years and years later um, made a very powerful impression on him. So I don't know whether he took it at face value. He realized how crazy it, it sounded, um, even more so because, <clears throat> as far as I'm aware, nobody has been able to produce evidence from a doctor, gynecological evidence, that this woman was indisputably, indisputably pregnant, and then suddenly, without a miscarriage and without a birth, the, the pregnancy had disappeared, without any natural explanation. Um, <clears throat> So um, there are many stories of women who recounting this, but no 
evidence to back it up because that's everyone's first reaction. Well, wh- you know, didn't she have a doctor's, you know, examination? What did the doctor say? Did the doctor find her pregnant? And then the next day found her not pregnant. Um, um, that evidence, again, is uh, among the most dramatic that is missing, that you would expect to find if this was happening in in, in a reality. But uh, what makes the story more powerful, as you say, is that these women, some of whom, uh, you know, told Mac that they never had had sex. I mean, they didn't remember uh, having any kind of sexual experience that would enable them to be pregnant. Um, and yet they felt that they were pregnant, that they were abducted, the pregnancy was removed, that they had to accept th- that fact willingly. In other words, it was not a forcible um, uh, procedure where they were um, compelled to submit to to this uh, removal of, of, of the fetus or whatever, but it was something that they had to agree to do willingly for the future of the race or, or something like that. They, they told that kind of a story that they were somehow convinced that they had to do it. And then uh, on a subsequent abduction, they were shown their their hybrid offspring and there were there were accounts of this in a book about Hopkins Road and many other accounts of women who who were sh- and men uh, who were shocked later to see or uh, be told that this is your hybrid child and some of them were not doing well they were sickly because the the mixture of species or races whatever was not that successful anyway. Uh, but but there were many accounts like this that that John Mack was confronted with, and like like we today, you know, shrug our shoulders and say, I don't know, it sounds crazy. But um, and where are all these hybrids? You know, if if they existed, are they walking around as as Dave Jacobs suggested in a book he wrote? You know, walking among us, that the hybrids are all uh, are already here. And um, but in that case, wouldn't uh, tests show that they differ from, you know, ordinary human beings? And yet I spoke to somebody who said he believed he was a hybrid. And yet he no tests showed him different from anybody else. You know, DNA testing, blood testing, normal. So are the aliens that clever that they can make hybrid beings look like everybody else? (laughs) Where does this take us? Um, but there you are. Well, I find it interesting that these stories seem to have many common elements, and I imagine Mac looked into the question of whether the the myth uh, got out so that it's pretty common in the culture, or whether the people who repeat these stories are actually quite independent of each other. Yeah, that's a good question, Jeff. I mean, Mac um, realized pretty quickly that the stories had a basic uh, con- a similarity, a consistency. Uh, people would be doing, you know, whatever they do normally. They're going to be asleep in their bedroom or they'd be driving a car or walking in the fields and they would become aware of, of a UFO. Uh, they would see it land. Then their memories became hazy. Uh, they might consciously remember some parts of, of seeing beings emerge, but often uh, that memory was uh, was sort of wiped out, and they would recall it only later. 
Uh, and then we can talk about hypnosis as a factor, uh, you know, a controversial factor and whether ideas can be implanted. We can talk about that. But anyway, so that was the basic story, the, the, the symmetry that he said made him believe that these people were telling a story that other people were familiar with. On the other hand, the details were so different. I, I, I spoke to a guy today, actually, experiencer, um, who told me of encounters with grasshopper-type beings um, uh, mantis-type beings that he had met many times um, in his life that had come to him at night and different uh, times. And uh, again, not terribly clear memories, but clear enough so that he could recall them very well. Um, and um, and that doesn't come up very often, that the that these beings uh, take the shape of giant insectoids, let's say. Other people have seen reptilian beings. Um, um, and this may go back to what you said before about different alien races that people say they have encountered. Uh, it's not just just the, the, the small so-called greys, um, which may be kind of robotic, actually, by some description. They may not even be living creatures at all, uh, by some accounts, because they they seem uh, to serve uh, the, the other uh, other figures, taller, more commanding figures. We were talking about the commonality of, of the reports. And another area that seems very intriguing are, is a question of implants. And I know a medical doctor, Lear, as I recall, has written a whole book. He was removing these implants. And uh, so there's a, a quite a large lore around the implants, Whitley Strieber maintains that he had a, an implant put in that has provided him with a certain telepathic abilities. You know, that's another problematic area. Again, I, I am not aware of any object being removed from an experiencer that tested uh, completely uh, credibly as an alien um, you know, structure or implement or device. I tell in my book the story of uh, somebody who th who remembered being implanted with a device. It later protruded uh, from his body. He took it out and uh, sent it for testing. An atomic physicist at MIT named Dave Pritchard, uh, who was very involved in this research, had it tested at MIT through all kinds of sophisticated chromograph tests or so. And the conclusion was that it was a biological um, object that, that grew in the body. Now, were the aliens so smart that they, you know, were able to, you know, construct a, a thing, an implant that, that passed as a biological, um, you know, human, uh, piece of tissue? Um, <laughs> you know, these things, just the way UFOs appear and disappear at will or seem to at, at some times, right? Um, the, the phenomenon also seems to appear and disappear. So implants that seem to people have very vivid memories of being planted, uh, implanted with a, a device, a BB size thing, or women have things put in, inside their bodies and they remember the instruments and they tell with great detail. And yet when scientists later search for these objects, um, it's not clear that they, they found them or that they pass muster as alien technology. So it's, again, part of the mystery. There's a, a trickster element here. These things appear and then they disappear. 
And uh, John Mack at one point said he had a wand from one of these um, beings uh, that was an experience it gave him. He never produced it. Um, it, it would be sensational. I mean, um, um, you know, people said if we can only have an ashtray from a UFO, you know, <laughs> then we'll know they're real. Uh, so, um, so that's the problem. These things exist in some kind of a parallel universe or some subtle realm where uh, they evade proof again and again and again. People set up cameras at night to try to catch them. It doesn't come out. Um, you know, uh, we talked about Skinwalker Ranch. There was one experiment that I found very haunting. They had two cameras there. They wanted to capture pictures of these strange things that were showing up at night, strange beings and um, all kinds of really spooky phenomena at this ranch in Utah. So they had two cameras set up. And the cameras were positioned so that one uh, could be visible on the, on the other. Okay, so in the morning, they went to check the cameras, and one camera was completely destroyed. It had had all the insides ripped out of it. And the other camera, which was focused on it, showed nothing, showed nothing happening to that camera at all. So that's almost a metaphor that even when you go through these really rigorous, you know, scientific procedures to try to capture this phenomenon, um, you're left, you know, holding the bag. Uh, and it's the same way with the implants. So um, I'm not aware of any implant being found that that resolves the problem, if it resolves the issue. If there were, I, I probably would know about it. Well, Ralph, you're one of the people, along with your partner, Leslie Kane, who broke the story in the New York Times about UFO sightings on radar and uh, captured on video by the U.S. Navy. So, so these are pretty yeah, hardcore physical sightings. Uh, do you think that uh, what you reported on is related in any way to the abduction phenomena, or could these be completely separate? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, you could say it's a step uh, in the direction of understanding, uh, you know, the, the anomalous phenomena. But let's uh, the article we wrote for the New York Times was only about UFOs or UAPs, as the military prefers to call them, unidentified aerial phenomena. They don't like UFOs. They think it's too spooky sounding. Okay. Nothing about it. We didn't write about aliens at all, okay, uh, or alien abduction, because <clears throat> science is only up to um, confirming the presence of UFOs, unidentified objects that have a physicality. Now we know they do for the first time because they were written about for many years as possibly spiritual things or that people were imagining or that, you know, didn't really exist, but that seemed to float in and out or whatever. Now we know they captured on radar. They've been eyeballed by, you know, jet pilots. They're captured on, you know, FLIR thermal imaging devices. So they are, as far as we know, as we can say with really some certainty now, they are physical. Now, where they come from, uh, are they intelligent? Who's piloting them? Are they from, you know, outer space? Because they also operate seemingly underwater. They've been seen going into the ocean and emerging from the ocean. So they are... <clears throat> They have an inter, uh, intermedia aspect where they can function underwater, which seems even more 
uh, amazing than the fact that they're up in the skies. You can imagine things flying around in the sky. It's hard to imagine things operating uh, equally well underwater that are not, you know, submarines. Um, anyway, so we've come that far. We can say, okay, there's a physicality to these things. They exist. We don't know more than that. They, they exist. We don't know what they are. Um, but that's a far cry from, from aliens and, um, you know, intelligent beings. That is a whole other dimension for which uh, there is, does not exist the same level of physical confirmation as we have for UFOs. Well, many of the alien abduction reports do include marks on the ground where landings supposedly took place. You're right about that, and that's interesting. There are a number of physical... Um, confirmations that Mac uh, was very uh, attracted to. Um, there were more. There were. There have been marks on the ground where people have seen UFOs land, um, and the the ground there sometimes seems to um, show uh, conditions that uh, that are strange. The snow melts there first. The grass doesn't grow there the way it grows on other parts of the field. So, yes, that's another physical confirmation. Uh, marks on bodies. People have uh, remembered being abducted and then coming back with marks, so-called scoop marks or scars, where um, supposedly experiments were conducted on them, uh, marks that they did not remember having. I just became aware of a whole different phenomenon, which may or may not be related, called um, the red grid marks phenomenon. Uh, people have shown up with a pin, dot pinpoints in the shape of a square. Uh, it shows up on the back, shows up on every part of the, of the skin, the face. Um, it doesn't seem to be related necessarily to abduction because people have gotten that don't remember being abducted. Uh, where these marks come from uh, is another mystery. I just became aware of this. There's a group that actually uh, people who are uh, who exhibit this phenomenon, who are trying to figure out um, the common commonalities, where this you know what what distinguishes them from other people. Uh, as I said, some have mentioned abduction experiences; many others have not. Um, <clears throat> so, physical marks on the bodies of people. In one case, John Mack had a, a quadriplegic who had marks on his body. He could not have inflicted them upon himself. Um, he couldn't move his muscles, uh, yet he had these marks, and they all seem to be um, similar. Not not everyone, but in many cases, they're called so-called scoop marks, as if a, a little bit of skin was was lifted out for some kind of some kind of testing. And um, Whitley Strieber has, you know, uh, very eloquently described uh, these experiences. Um, so uh, that's another aspect of physical confirmation uh, that that attracted John Mack. And he said, in some cases, there were witnesses. Um, uh, I spoke to an experiencer just the other day who said his partner um, uh, saw some of his experience. She, she witnessed uh, not the exact same thing, but uh, energy in the room, a hum, um, uh, something strange going on. So that's interesting. A second person. Look at Betty and Barney Hill. I mean, did both people have, you know, mutual delusions? Uh, this is what, you know, troubled the psychiatrist who investigated the case, Ben Simon. How did two people come up with the same story? Um, so all that really argues for the 
you know, the fact that this this mystery is really intractable and it's not easily, you know, uh, debunked despite what the so-called skeptics say. Well, Ralph Blumenthal, this has been once again a fascinating probe into as you say, an unsolved mystery. It may be related to many other unsolved mysteries. I think if we were to uh, look at the whole range of what some people call fortiana or, or, or phenomena that just defy conventional explanation, there, there would be many dozen, if not hundreds, of other examples. So, it's very important that we pay attention to these anomalies, and I want to thank you once again very much for sharing your knowledge with our audience. Well, it's a real pleasure, Jeff. Love to do it. Thank you for inviting me. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. 